It's spooky season, everybody, so you know what that means. It's time to find some scary stories from history, because as my history professor always says, the truth is often scarier than fiction. Let's get into it. That's right, everyone. It is October. It's fall, officially. My favorite time of year. I love fall. It's nice temperatures at the beginning of fall. Nice weather. It's beautiful out. Halloween's right around the corner. I have had some bad experiences personally with Halloween. I lost a family member last year that was very close to me on Halloween. But I don't want it to detract from the holiday because I still like the <clears throat> the atmosphere and the uh, the fall season. Not really Halloween in general, but I, I like the you know getting into the spirit of things. Uh, that fall brings around, especially with Halloween, just uh, at the cap, uh, the end rather, of October. So, what I set out to do in this episode, and maybe another one if it goes well, it's still early in October, is to find some scary stories from the past. Some of the spookiest things that I could conjure up, that I could dig up from history... That'll be sure to send shivers down your spine. So, if you're listening to this, listening to this in the car, I can't help you. But if you're listening to this at home or anywhere else where you can control the lights, dim the lights real low, light a candle, watch out for shadows in the corner of the room because right now, we're going to spookify the podcast. Not really. Um, I am gonna, <laughs> I am gonna find some uh, more strange and spooky stories from the past. I keep using the word spooky, scary stories from the past. How about that? Um, and I don't have any like really ghost books or the history of Halloween or anything. So I really had to turn to the internet for this one. And there's plenty of really cool and fascinatingly, interestingly scary stories that uh, the past can conjure up for us. So without further ado, let's get into it, for real this time. For our first story, I am going to talk about something a little more fantastical, a little more paranormal, but I quite like this story because it deals with the Battle of Gettysburg, a cranky old dude, and a ghost. And I think that that combination in itself is pretty funny. Uh, especially when you figure out who the old guy is. So, for some background, uh, of course the Battle of Gettysburg happens July 1st through 3rd, 1863. We won't go into the details of that. That would just waste so much time. So, but I will tell you a story from July 1st because that's important. On July 1st, an old guy named John Burns, who was a War of 1812 veteran... Uh, my history professor calls him a curmudgeon. I quite like that word. It's it's a good describing word for John Burns. But uh, this fellow named John Burns, who is uh, a staunch patriot, on July 1st goes uh, and grabs his old flintlock musket, and he goes to McPherson's Ridge, where the heaviest of the fighting is going on at that time. He joins in rank uh, with the Iron Brigade after he's turned down multiple times, uh, until someone says, finally, you know, uh, you'll find a gun and eventually, and then you can join our ranks or whatever. So he probably picks up a, a 
you know, a GI, a government-issued musket's probably a better word, from a dead body or a wounded guy and takes his ammo, and he joins the ranks of the Iron Brigade uh, on the first day's fight at Gettysburg. He's wounded five times, uh, but he survives. <clears throat> He's a 70-some-year-old guy, so... You know, to, be, to get wounded five times and still be kicking for a couple years after the war is pretty good. Um, another interesting fact, real quick, is that John Burns is actually the only citizen of Gettysburg that Abraham Lincoln will personally visit. He asks to go see John Burns when he comes into town. Uh, so, you know, for all the people wanting to see the president, John Burns is the only person the president wants to see, which is interesting. Anyway, that's enough of the side. <laughs> So years after the battle, uh, John Burns' family and local people are asking him for tours of the battlefield, you know, his experiences of the day, what he saw, what he remembers, what was happening, and he does that, and things are going smoothly, of course, uh, until one day he's out alone on McPherson's Ridge, where he had been fighting, and he claims that he saw the ghost, the face of a young man he saw die in battle, uh, appear to him near the woods, and he sort of... Uh, waved him on down towards uh, Willoughby Run, down the slope of the ridge into the forest. And John Burns thought that he was, this ghost, the spirit, was trying to usher him to the other side, that it was his time. But John Brown, or John, excuse me, John Burns, not John Brown. John Brown is long dead by this time. John Burns says, uh, you know, I was so afraid that I nearly fainted. And he went back into town and never went to that portion of the battlefield ever again. Now, this is to be taken with a grain of salt. As I said at the beginning, this is more of a fantastical and paranormal experience in a story. Uh, so, yeah, don't look into that too much because we don't know if it's really true or not. <laughs> but I love that story. Um, it's always fun to tell on the battlefield when you're giving a tour, and it's a fun little nugget that's sure to get a little huh out of somebody this Halloween. So the next story we're going to talk about is another favorite of mine. Um, I think it's really interesting, uh, and, and so do a lot of people apparently now because it's becoming extremely popular. It's also a, the basis of a song by a band called Sabaton, I think is what the name is. I don't know. Anyways, <laughs> it's not important. Um, but this is the story, The Attack of the Dead Men. So, let's get some background here. This happened during World War One, And when most people think of World War One, generally they think of mud, vast tracts of no man's land, barbed wire, you know, abandoned uh, tanks vehicles, dead bodies lying out in fields, things of that sort. But they don't really think of the heavier fighting that happened on the Eastern Front between Russia and Germany. Uh, so knocking out Russia during the war is one of Germany's main goals, since Russia was seen as such a great threat to their power. And a large optical, obstacle excuse me, that stood in the way of the Germans was Osoviec Fortress, one of Russia's westernmost forts. Being located in modern-day Poland, this fortification forced Germany to keep soldiers in, in that area instead of uh, sending them to the Western Front, where they were needed. It also hindered the German advance into Russia, making the fall of Osoviec crucial to their strategy. 
The fort itself, however, was not really heavily defended, with only a few companies of soldiers occupying it at a time. However, it was easy defensible, so there wasn't that much need for reinforcements or that many troops occupying the fortress at one time. Outside of the fortress were two defensive lines set up to stop an enemy attack before it even reached the fort. So there was that, and the first line was made up of a shallow trench network with barbed wire at the front, of course. If the first line fell, then they were to retreat to the second trench, which had a much deeper uh, cut in the ground and a trench, as well as more barbed wire and areas for machine gun emplacements. If an enemy force made it through those two trenches, then they would have to face the tall walls and battlements that made up Fort Osoviec's outer defenses. Here, Russian soldiers could easily shoot down at advancing enemies from a relatively safe position. So if the attackers made it inside, then they would have to fight in a deadly close quarters combat. This layered defense system is what made it easy for such few soldiers to hold such a massive and important fortress. In September of 1914, the Germans launched their first attack on Osoviec. The German 8th Army attacked with around 40 infantry battalions, which is over 10,000 soldiers, far superior numbers to the few hundred defending Russians. A massive frontal assault was launched, but they were repelled by the Russian artillery. A few months later, they would try again. On February 3rd, another frontal assault was launched. Germany again had numerical superiority. But heavy fighting ensued for five days before the first defensive line was broken, and the Russians were forced to fall back. The second line of defenses was attacked, but German forces withdrew after only two days. On February 13th, heavy artillery was brought up and the fort experienced an absolutely hellacious bombardment. For an entire week, 360 shells would hit the fort every four minutes. 360 shells every four minutes. That's crazy. When the barrage was over, more than 250,000 shells from heavy, or, or, excuse me, heavy siege cannons had descended on the fort and over 1 million shells from lighter artillery had fallen upon it. The defending Russians suffered heavy casualties and many of the inner buildings collapsed, but the German forces still could not break through. Finally, that leads us to the legendary attack, the attack of the dead men. At the beginning of July, the Germans launched another attack. This time they had only 14 battalions, but they now brought along sappers and a special weapon. The German leader, Field Marshal Paul von Hindenburg, knew that the Russian gas masks could not stand up to chlorine gas and planned on using this to his advantage to finally take the fortress. As the Germans set up for the assault, they waited for the right time to launch their new weapon on the 500 Russian soldiers and 400 militiamen defending a Soviet fort. Chlorine gas is particularly nasty, as it targets the soft tissue such as the eyes, esophagus, and your lungs. Once it mixes with moist skin, it forms an acid that eats away at the flesh. There is no cure for it, and the only thing that can be done is flush the chlorine out of one's system, and then attempt to heal whatever, uh, whatever the acid damaged. See, on August 6th, after waiting several days for favorable wind conditions, the Germans launched 30 canisters of chlorine gas at the fort. A greenish-yellow cloud seeped out and quickly spread throughout the area and surrounded the fortress. Now, one could imagine what it would be like to be a Russian soldier, even a German soldier, watching this happen. You know, you see it portrayed in the movies, but you don't know what it's really like to actually see it, you know? You could maybe imagine trees, leaves turning yellow as in the grass maybe turning black with this gas everywhere. 
And, you know, men outside of the fort would quickly die as the gas would enter the respiratory system and dissolve their lungs. Those inside the fort watched as their comrades fell and attempted to put on their gas masks, but of course they were of little use, and that's why the Germans used that chlorine gas. The gas spread into the fort, and the Russian defenders slowly began to take in this toxic, you know, acid that they were breathing in. Inhaling a lower concentration than the ones outside, they would take longer to die, so the suffering would be far longer than it was to the guys outside, because, you know, that's where the concentration of the gas is. As they struggled to breathe, and they coughed up blood and bits of their lungs into their hands, the Germans outside donned their own gas masks, which could stand withstand the chlorine gas, and began to enter the fortress. As all this happened, a hundred badly wounded Russian soldiers prepared to make their final stand. The Germans made it over the wall and started marching into the inner fortifications of Osoviec. They were met by a gruesome sight. Led by 2nd Lieutenant Vladimir Kotlinsky, 60 Russians uh, began the attack with bloody rags wrapped around their face. As, you know, their face was falling apart underneath it, their eyes were coming out, still coughing up chunks of their lungs and their insides. A few even coughed up pieces of their own lungs at the charging attacking Germans. Some of the invading troops fired at these, quote, dead men, but the Russians attacked their poisoners with such ferocity that eyewitnesses said nothing could stop them. Panicked by both the terrifying bloody spectacle and the Russians' willingness to somehow keep fighting, the superior German forces again quickly retreated from the fort. Some were so startled that they dropped their rifles and machine guns, leaving them behind in a panic. And as they ran out, some of as they ran out, some of Germans were so shaken that they caught themselves up in their own barbed wire. Kutlinski's counterattack afforded two more Russian companies to move up and retake the fort before Germans could regroup and enter once more. So, later that evening, uh, Lieutenant Kotlinski and many others that were um, gassed would die from their wounds, but of course the actions were not in vain. A Soviet fortress held for several more days, helping to cover and protect any retreating Russian forces in the area and further hamper the Germans' plans to take Russia. On August 22nd, the soldiers of the fort surrendered and marched out peacefully. But they held on long enough for the Tsar's forces to regroup and form new defensive plans. Now this story is absolutely incredible. I mean, it really goes to show some of the will that men are that men have, rather, when it comes to fighting and dying in battle and when they have an objective and they know they're going to die. It's just, it's absolutely insane. And this, stories like this, not specifically zombies attacking Germans, but stories like that occur a lot throughout wars and they're f always fascinating and there's so much tragedy and drama to them. Hey everybody, right before we go back into the podcast... I just wanted to give a quick shout-out to uh, a podcast of my friend, uh, Dan Morris. He has a podcast called Erica 2020. That's E-R-I-K-A, Erica 2020. He's making an alternate history film about um, the Nazis winning World War II and uh, how that kind of played out uh, up until 2020. And he's, like I said, he's making a film about that. He pretty much goes to film school. I wanted to give him a quick shout-out because I think it's a really cool project. 
Uh, he's a good friend of mine, so I was going to support his podcast no matter what. And, uh, you know, I figured I'd throw in a quick shout-out, so please go give that a listen. Um, it's an upcoming project, of course. And I think uh, people who listen to my podcast will find that very interesting and at least entertaining. So go listen to Erica2020 on Anchor and, I believe, Spotify. Thanks. So this next story is really interesting, and I didn't really know this until I stumbled uh, upon an article about it online a couple days ago. This is the story uh, that ties in with uh, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln in April of 1865. Uh, we've probably all seen the picture of, or rather the drawing, uh, etching, of <laughs> John Wilkes Booth assassinating Abraham Lincoln in, in Ford's Theater. Uh, Booth is standing behind Lincoln and firing into the back of his head, and he's holding a dagger as well. Uh, Mary Todd Lincoln is there, but there's also another woman and another gentleman there, and the gentleman is wearing a Union Army uniform, and he's sort of reaching up to attempt to stop Booth. Um, the other woman that is not Mary Todd Lincoln is named Clara Harris, who is the daughter of a prominent U.S. senator and wife of Union Army Major Henry Rathbone. He is the man trying to stop Booth in that image. Rathbone is best known really for trying to stop Booth, and he's wounded by the dagger that uh, Booth is carrying with him. However, that's not what we're going to talk about. What we're going to talk about is the events that occur later in his life that are quite creepy, and this article actually compares it to Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. So, as we mentioned Rathbone was seriously uh, injured while attending this play and trying to save Lincoln, but he physically survived the attack, of course. However, his mind apparently never recovered. The officer blamed himself for failing to stop Booth, killing Lincoln, and even though he eventually married Clara two years later, uh, wedded life only added to his stress and insanity. Eventually, Rathbone's mind deteriorated to the point that in December of 1883, he decided to kill his family. While serving as a U.S. consul in Hanover, Germany, Rathbone attempted to kill all three of his children, and when his wife stopped him, he fatally shot and stabbed her, and stabbed himself, mentally replaying Booth's actions from 18 years earlier. The police discovered Rathbone covered with blood and completely out of his mind, acting absolutely insane. According to a widely repeated but unconfirmed report, he claimed that there were people hiding behind the pictures on his wall. Rathbone spent the rest of his life in an insane asylum, where he complained of secret machines that uh, were in the walls blowing gas into his bedroom and giving him headaches. He later died in 1911, becoming the last casualty of the Lincoln assassination, nearly half a century after the fact. Incidentally, the house in Hanover where he lived is looking for a caretaker. So, if anybody wants to go and, you know, take for or take care of this house that was the scene of a gruesome family murder, then there you go. That opportunity is there for you. So, <laughs> um, that is a quick story, and the rest of these are probably going to be quick stories, because I, th I found some really interesting ones, and this one uh, was really interesting, and I thought it was uh, relevant still. So, I hope you like that one. Alright everybody, I think I am going to wrap it up there. Um, I think we got a pretty diverse range of those three stories. And if you do want more stories, please let me know. 
uh, by showing your support for this podcast, liking the episode, doing whatever you can, follow it on Spotify, follow me on Instagram at History Smash 1863, no capitals, 1863, 1863 is what those are, uh, and comment or message me on there and say that you want more of this. Uh, so yeah, thank you all for listening. Uh, I really had fun making this episode, and like I said, if you do want more, I'll probably make another one on just on my own, but still, if you want another one, uh, please let me know by doing as much as you can to support the podcast. I will greatly appreciate it, and I will do what you guys want, so thank you all for listening. Hopefully you have a good spooky season if we don't make another episode of this, uh, and enjoy your Halloween and your fall. Thanks.